This is They Create Worlds, episode 157, Final Fantasy's Tale. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Once again, we get to go into our favorite lands of our childhood, role-playing games. But not any role-playing games, ones that we had trouble defeating for many, many years because it was very, very hard. (laughs) Then we just let the game sit there in glorious victory for at least 48 hours. Yes, We are talking about everyone's favorite game for the NES, Final Fantasy. That's right. The beginning of an incredibly long-running series that still resonates to this day, that we still play to this day, personally, the two of us, and which is arguably even more important than Dragon Quest in the wider world in terms of getting that JRPG style and aesthetic popularized, and in some ways even in Japan just as influential as Dragon Quest, though never as good a seller there in earlier decades. We're not going to cover the whole series today. That's a lot of games. (laughs) There are 15 of them now. We're going to do a deep dive into the creation of the very first Final Fantasy, the personalities involved, and some of the core elements that were established for the series very early on uh, in the first game, and kind of where some of that came from. Now, how would this be different from what we talked about before? Because I know we talked about the history of Enix and Square, Mm -hmm. and we also talked about the genesis of JRPGs. Absolutely. And in both of those topics, of course, we had to talk about Final Fantasy, because it's a big part of both of those. However, just like with our recent Madden episodes, where we had talked about Madden in the context of EA Sports, but hadn't gone super deep into the actual creation of the game, we're going to do the same thing this time with Final Fantasy. We're not going to focus quite so much on the history of Square or the history of RPGs as a whole or any of that kind of thing. And as I said, we're not even going to go on to 2 and 3 and 4 and on and on in the series either, but just really focus in on the people that were behind the first game, who are people that would go on to define all of Square output, not just in the Final Fantasy series, but in other series as well. So there's that aspect. It'll be a deeper dive. I've also gotten access to more Japanese sources since we've covered this stuff before and so have some interesting new insights into some of these players as well from these newly mined sources. So this one will be a a good deal different from other times that we may have covered Final Fantasy in the past. So just so that we're all clear from the start here, one thing to take away is Final Fantasy was not the last ditch hope of Square to save itself. Okay, we're going there. Let's do it. We'll go there right now. (laughs) There's a lot of things to talk about, but we'll go ahead and talk about the name first, since we're here. There is a story, a story that the creators of the games themselves have also told, which is part of the reason why it got mythologized. There is a story that Hironobu Sakaguchi, creator of Final Fantasy, whom we will be discussing in much more detail in just a little bit, was either despairing about game development or Square was doing so poorly that if they didn't have a hit, all game development was going to wrap up or something along those lines. 
So he saw this game as his last shot, either to save Square from bankruptcy or to save his own interest in continuing to design games in the future rather than finding something else to do. People say that that is the reason why the game is called Final Fantasy. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. It's kind of funny because Sakaguchi tries to set the record straight these days, and there was one interview where he complained. It's like, I've told the real story several times, but it's having a hard time catching on. And it's like, that's because you told the other story for so many years. You told lies. Now you're mad that people believed your lies. So no, it does not mean that it was the final potential Square game or the final potential Sakaguchi game. So what does it mean? Well, we'll get to that in due course. Don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. We'll kind of set the stage right there that Final Fantasy, while it was always meant to be a fantasy, it was never, ever meant to be final. This is how we could set up wonderful teasers for the beginning of the episode so that you listen further on for more information. Something like that. Final Fantasy, which we know has lots of wonderful influences, mostly from Dungeons & Dragons, influences from Ultima, influences from Wizardry, and they went and looked at that Dragon Warrior thing, or Dragon Quest, and said, yeah, now we could do this a wee bit better. Sure, there were some computer game influences to it, and that's undeniable. But I think one of the things that sets Final Fantasy apart from other JRPGs of the time period, and certainly sets it apart from Dragon Quest, is that the influences went far deeper than just other games. It's a game that was really steeped in fantasy, in the history of fantasy, in a way that something like Dragon Quest, which did have primarily just video game, computer game influences, really did not. To get down into that, we really have to start with the creator of the game itself, Mr. Hironobu Sakaguchi. Hironobu Sakaguchi was the son of a Hitachi employee. Growing up, the furthest thing from his mind was being involved in creating games. He wanted to be a musician. Really, really wanted to be a musician. He learned some piano, he learned some guitar. That was his entire goal. He was not a good student. In fact, he was worse than not a good student. He was not even an indifferent student. He was a practically non-existent student. He was kind of a bad boy in a way. I mean, he wasn't running with the wrong crowd, per se. He wasn't in a gang or anything like that. But he would skip school in the morning to go to the pachinko parlors, which were not appropriate venues for teenagers. He befriended a, what they would call a pachi pro, a pachinko pro, at this pachinko parlor, who kind of taught him the ins and outs of manipulating the game. This was in a time before there was really any skill involved in pachinko, before there were patchy slot machines and that kind of thing. This pro kind of took him under his wing and taught him some of the ins and outs, so he became very good at pachinko and very good at winning money from pachinko. But Alex, you say, I thought gambling was illegal in Japan. Well, yes, it was. And no, it wasn't. That didn't stop the pachinko parlors, so it was kind of a loophole. You couldn't run games that awarded prizes. There was kind of a loophole. There was nothing that said that you could not take something from the pachinko parlor and take it around the corner to this other place, and then this other place just give you something in exchange for the thing you brought them. It's not a prize. 
you didn't get it from them. They didn't award it to you. You didn't win it from them. They just like the thing you're giving them and are happy to give you some cash in return. Blink, blink. That's what they would do. You know, in Pachinko, there's a lot of balls. And as you launch balls and balls go into storing holes, then the game ejects balls when you score points. And what you could do is you could gather up these balls that you've won, and then those would be used as a medium of exchange around the corner at the other window that is totally in no way connected to the pachinko parlor, I promise, where they would give you cash. So that was kind of this gray market that existed in pachinko gambling, and Sakaguchi was right in the middle of this as a teenager. He became very good at it. He would win a lot of money, and then he'd go to his afternoon classes. He didn't entirely skip school. He'd skip in the morning play pachinko all morning, go to his afternoon classes, and then after school, he would go to the coffee houses. Coffee house is not just kind of like a Starbucks. I mean, it's it's a place where young people hang out and do all sorts of activities during this period of time in Japan. We've talked about them before in the context of Space Invaders and other tabletop video games. So he would go to the coffee houses and he would play some games. He got into Hyankyo Alien for a while. It's a game we've talked about before, the maze game where you're digging holes to trap aliens. And watch movies. Uh, He got very much into Star Wars, for instance. Just kind of hang out. That was his existence, and it was not good for his academics. He nearly flunked out of school on a couple of occasions before he applied himself. He had to take a year off after school before he could start university because he didn't test well enough. He didn't do well enough to get into university. He had to spend a year studying to pass entrance exams and get into school. He spent all of this time doing everything in his power to become a musician. He was active in bands in high school. He went around trying to make it professionally, and it just didn't work out at all. He shifted to games. In college, he was going to Yokohama University, through the intervention of another young man by the name of Hiromichi Tanaka, another name that is very deep in the lore of Square. Hiromichi Tanaka was a tech nerd, plain and simple, going all the way back. The kind of tech nerd that is common in stories of early American engineers and and game creators, but is really kind of less common in Japan, I think it's fair to say. He grew up in a modest family. His father was a private taxi driver. He was into the shows of his youth in the 60s. Television was really coming in at this time in Japan. He got really into shows like Ultraman and especially Astro Boy, which is one of the legendary founding shows of Japanese anime or animation. He was fascinated by the technology, absolutely fascinated. As he put it, of course, you know, TVs were a relatively new thing in Japan at this time, and they had black and white CRT television, as, as most people did. That was pretty kind of cool on its own, but then he's watching Astro Boy, and he's seeing the televisions in Astro Boy, which takes place in some indeterminate future, are these flat, wall-mounted televisions. He's like, that is so cool. I want to be the guy that makes that, that designs that, that figures that out. And that was kind of the beginning of his interest in technology. And he was very young. I mean, when he was an early, early elementary school student, technology became his thing. He tinkered with electronic parts. He tinkered with radio. And he just enmeshed himself in all of these things. Tanaka and Sakaguchi, by the time they came to school and they both went to Yokohama, 
Tanaka in Sakaguchi's case, it was basically that's the kind of place he had to go <laughs> with his situation. Tanaka could have probably gone to a more prestigious school, but his family was of modest means and he needed to go to a, a state school. He couldn't go to someplace like, say, Waseda University, which was more prestigious, but also much more expensive. But they were both kind of loners in school. Sakaguchi was not your typical student. He went around. He didn't have the mustache back then, the famous mustache, but he went around sporting an afro, wearing cowboy boots and a jean jacket. I mean, he was kind of vibing this whole musician thing. He didn't really conform with his peers. And of course, that made him very much an outsider. Especially in Japan. Mm -hmm. Just imagine someone dressing with that level of Western influence in Japan, where in university and stuff, you usually wear a set uniform day in, day out, going to and from classes. Mm -hmm. Wearing something that outlandish, especially one with such influence from the West during this time period, is complete alienation from your peers. Absolutely. Tanaka just being such a deep, deep, deep tech head. I mean, going way back, that was kind of a, a loner existence, too. So they found each other because they were both kind of outsiders. Tanaka was a big game player. He played Hankyo Alien and Space Invaders and all of that in the coffee shops and whatnot. But being the tech nerd that he was, he had also built himself an Apple II computer. The Apple II was released in Japan. In fact, the very famous Japanese computer game company, Nihon Falcom, got its start as an Apple II computer shop. As we know, as we've talked about in many episodes here, the Apple II was very expensive, even in the United States, even in its native country. It was incredibly expensive when it was imported to other countries, because on top of the already exorbitant price, you had import costs, custom duties, taxes, whatever else. So the Apple II was a very expensive machine, and it never had a lot of adherence in Japan for that reason. However, if you were interested in that computer and you were interested in that technology and you had some know-how to go with it, well, you could go down to Akihabara and you could get the parts to make your own totally 100% authentic Apple II computer. Just don't ask about where this stamp saying made in China came from. Now, when people picture Akihabara today, they picture it as the hub of otaku. And it's all about games and geeks and idols and cosplay and kind of this commercialized nerd mecca. That is not what Akihabara was back in this time period, back in the 1970s. It was a tech hub, but it was the place with the tiny, dirty shops full of random electronic junk. That's how the area got its start, as a tech place. It was not mainstream. It was not regular user-friendly. It was for the real tech heads. But if you needed a part, if you needed something electronic, you could go to Akihabara and somebody in one of these shops would have it. Tanaka had built his own Apple II out of these components. As he and Sakaguchi became friends, of course, they hang out together, and uh, Sakaguchi went to Tanaka's place, and he saw the Apple II. This was life-changing for Sakaguchi. Now, he'd, he'd had exposure to electronics and stuff before. In fact, he was even—his major in college was in communications electronics. It's not like he had no kind of background in that, but he wasn't super passionate about all of this tech stuff and the way Tanaka was. 
when he saw the Apple II, he was blown away. And he was blown away on a couple of different levels. He was blown away by things like VisiCalc, because spreadsheets were a brand new thing then. As we've talked about, VisiCalc was the first one. Everything you could do with an Apple II excited him. But he was also particularly excited about the games, and particularly Ultima. Wizardry some as well, but particularly Ultima. The other thing about Sakaguchi, and the thing that I hinted at a few minutes ago at the top of this description of things, is that another aspect of Sakaguchi is he was a big fantasy literature fan. I really do think this is something that differentiates Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, because Yuji Horii, Koichi Nakamura, the kind of principal architects of Dragon Quest, they fell in love with the Apple II. They had a similar path to Tanaka in the sense that they saw the Apple II, got Apple IIs, played Ultima, played Wizardry, were like, oh my gosh, this is neat. How can we translate this into something on this new Famicom, which we talked about because we've done Dragon Quest. They didn't have this deep, other-abiding love of fantasy as a genre outside of that. Sakaguchi was all over that. There was a small publisher in Japan that translated a lot of classic older fantasy works into Japanese, as well as releasing the works of the few Japanese authors that were involved in something similar. Sakaguchi ate this stuff up. Probably the two that he was most interested in is there's a long-running Japanese series that I don't know a lot about because other than the first five books, and there are over a hundred of them, only the first five books have been translated into English, so there's not a lot in English language sources. But there's a saga called the Guin Saga by author Kaoru Kurimoto, who uh, has since passed away, but she wrote over a hundred volumes in the series, and now other authors are writing more volumes in this series, that is just this kind of epic story about this amnesiac warrior named Guin, who has a leopard mask magically affixed to his head and has no memories and is thrust out into a world of, you know, as they say, danger, intrigue, and magic. I don't have a lot of information on it. It's often been called the Japanese Lord of the Rings, not so much for its literary aesthetic or because it's a similar story to Lord of the Rings, but because it's kind of the Japanese fantasy epic. So he was into that, but another big influence is the work of Michael Moorcock. When we talk about fantasy in the West anymore, we really talk about Tolkien and then everyone who came after Tolkien. Lord of the Rings is kind of the urtext that we always go back to when talking about the history of fantasy, because these days, the popular fantasy authors tend to be the fantasy authors that kind of grew out of that Lord of the Rings track. You know, that was kind of the starting point. But we have to remember there was other fantasy coming out before or around the same time as Tolkien. Some of that fantasy was also incredibly influential. And Michael Moorcock is one of those individuals who had a huge influence on a lot of people, on a lot of things, including on Dungeons & Dragons, that maybe isn't as well-known by a lay audience today. Moorcock is still alive. He's in his 80s now, but he started so young that he's actually contemporary of some of the other writers of the 50s and the 60s, many of whom are now gone. But he grew up on late 19th century, early 20th century adventure tales. 
of the type written by people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is kind of another starting point for science fiction and fantasy that often gets overlooked, and started writing as a teenager in the late 50s. You know, was prolific, wrote a lot of stories and whatnot, but then his seminal works, without any doubt, is his Elric series of books. The Elric books were written in a way as a response to the other kind of important early fantasy person. There's there's kind of a trinity, really, if you think about it, and Tolkien is the one that people really remember today. But Moorcock and then Robert E. Howard are definitely kind of the other two legs of the tripod that kind of creates the entire modern fantasy scene. Robert E. Howard, of course, wrote the Conan books, the early Conan books. There have been other books written since by other authors, but he's the creator of Conan, creator of Hyperborea, the creator of all of this world. Conan the Barbarian is set in kind of a dark age. That's the thing about all of this fantasy that is interesting to reflect on and something that, you know, I don't think it's mentioned as much. Fantasy is pretty post-apocalyptic when you think about it. We didn't have this idea of a genre of of post-apocalyptic that we have today with things like the Hunger Games or like the Fallout video game series. And of course, those post-apocalyptic stories, those or The Walking Dead or those kind of things, are post-apocalyptic in the context of a modern world whether it's because of environmental calamity or zombie outbreak or nuclear war, some modern threat emerges that plunges the world into a more primitive state. That's what we think of post-apocalyptic, and that's where that term came from. But if you think about it, something like J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings is very post-apocalyptic. It takes place in a world where there had once been these great kingdoms of elves like Linden and these great kingdoms of dwarves like Khazad-dûm and Moria, these great kingdoms of man like the island nation of Numenor that was inspired by Atlantis in Tolkien's writings. These civilizations flourished in the Second Age of Middle-earth, and then because of the wars with Morgoth and with Sauron, these realms were destroyed and obliterated, and, you know, Khazad-dûm stands empty. The Balrog is there now. The elves are retreating from Middle-earth back to Valinor. They're abandoning it. The kingdoms of men have fallen. The northern kingdom of Arnor is gone. The southern kingdom of Gondor is shrinking and failing. This is a post-apocalyptic world. You actually get that in a lot of the books that you're talking about and in other media. Mm-hmm. One thing that's very commonly said is that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Arthur C. Clarke. The fascinating thing about that, if you look at it from a certain standpoint, you can see that it's a very advanced civilization that fell. Mm-hmm. Conan the Barbarian, or say, if you want to go to a cartoon level, Thundar the Barbarian. <laughs> right. He has this lightsaber sword, but he runs around like a barbarian. Well, that lightsaber sword. That's high technology. Mm-hmm. If you have something that's, say, a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years in the future, and something apocalyptic happens that throws everything back to effectively 
Bronze Age stuff for most things, but there are still caches of technology out there that go, yeah, if I'm brave enough or smart enough, I can take some of this old technology and put it together and do something truly miraculous for the entire civilization. Or I can raise up a kingdom Mm -hmm. that's very, very powerful because I can control enough technology. And if I fight someone else who had that technology, we're just fighting the same old wars again. Absolutely. The way civilization has fallen, that becomes mythologized in a very different way. Gods, kingdoms, heroes. And people go like, well, how'd that happen? How'd this happen? I recall listening to a post-apocalyptic book that dealt with a zombie apocalypse where there were spores from uh, mushrooms that would infect you. And then over a period of a few months to a year, it would turn you into sort of a mindless zombie thing. It takes place about 100 to 200 years after the events of the apocalypse. The people who founded the colony, they revered the two, like, guards people who did that as Adam and Eve, almost. Mm -hmm. People get checked regularly to see whether or not they have become infected during the spore season. They don't even consider that people could get infected and not actually go crazy. They go out into the world and they go, oh, we found this old flying beast that has crashed into the thing. Airplane. (laughs) We found these old ancient structures of the ancients. Car park. Right. It's interesting seeing it from the standpoint of that. Mm -hmm. The book itself actually wasn't that well written, but the concepts were very interesting. Sure. When it comes to something like Tolkien or Robert E. Howard... They are not pulling from our present has failed and we're in their future, but they envision a past before our understanding of Earth in which there had been a collapse. Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion, that is a mythology for Earth. It's the idea that all of this happened before what we know as Earth. When it's Robert E. Howard and Conan, the Hyperborean Age was supposed to have taken place after the fall of Atlantis. It was supposed to be this time of chaos after the fall of Atlantis and before the rise of human civilization as we know it today. A time of magic and evil wizards and villains that Conan needs to vanquish. We even have that in a modern sense today where there are people who believe that there's an ancient cache of technology and knowledge hidden under the Sphinx. (laughs) We have some sort of ancient archive on the dark side of the moon. Right. People will say, hey, look, the rover on Mars found this pipe that's sticking out in the middle of Mars. We got a lot of that same kind of thing in our own modern zeitgeist that expresses Maybe this isn't the first time that civilization has risen. Right. Moorcock, to get back to our man here that Sakaguchi was a fan of, Moorcock was writing in a very similar vein to Howard in his Hyperborean stuff, except that he basically wanted to create the anti-Conan. Conan was this big, strong warrior who distrusted magic and was able to rule as a king through his physical prowess. So Moorcock created this character, Elric, who was a sickly albino who required magic in order to keep his place. He had a sword called Stormbringer, which was, again, something that was taken from another fantasy writer of the time who had a similar concept, the writer Poole Anderson, who was also involved in this early fantasy scene in the 50s and 60s. 
his book, The Broken Sword, was a big influence on this because it had a similar sword. But the sword was basically demonic. It got its power by feeding off of the souls of others. So Alaric was a good guy. He's the protagonist of the story. But he has a soul-stealing sword that he relies on for all of his powers. So that gets a bit dicey, and it's meant to get a bit dicey. And it certainly brings in the contention of you can't do good without a little bit of evil, or there's always shades of gray to any kind of leadership. The Elric books by Moorcock were all about balance. It was a story about the kind of eternal conflict between law and chaos. Chaos. Hmm. Think this might be an important influence on a certain game that this episode's supposed to be about? Yeah, some jerk named Chaos and his cure for. Uh huh. Basically, these forces need to be in harmony in Moorcock's universe for the good of the multiverse. Yes, he had a multiverse. If Chaos is always trying to overcome law, trying to overcome order, that's where the problems come in. There needs to be chaos, but chaos cannot disrupt the balance of the world. Wait a minute, didn't Final Fantasy have a plot where an entity called Chaos was disrupting the balance of the world and the Warriors of Light needed to restore the balance of the world? Something about bringing order by stopping the earth from being rotted, Mm -hmm. stopping the waters from going to chaos and tormenting everything. Something about a space station and a dragon? Yeah? Hmm. So why am I having this super long conversation about Tolkien and Howard and Moorcock and post-apocalyptic tendencies and fantasy? It's all right here. Moorcock was one of Sakaguchi's favorite authors at this phase in his life. I think you can see so much of that in Final Fantasy. Dragon Quest, it's bright and happy, right? I mean, yes, there's a dragon lord. We have to rescue the princess and kill the dragon lord. But it's a land of bright colors. The ocean is very blue. The grass is very green. The slimes are very red. And happy. And happy and smiling. It's got these medieval trappings to it, and it's drawing from Ultima and Wizardry for kind of its design, but without that greater depth of understanding of fantasy, I think. I mean, the the fantasy that Hori and Nakamura or even, you know, the graphics designer Toriyama know is the fantasy of the computer games, not the fantasy behind the computer games. I mean, Richard Garriott, obviously, we talked about Ultima. I mean, Lord of the Rings was a big influence on him. There's not that extra degree of connection. Sakaguchi had a connection with fantasy, and fantasy, at that time especially, if you get right down to it, it was bleak. It was about overcoming overwhelming odds, finding hope in the darkest situations, and living and adventuring in the shadows of civilizations that were far greater than yours. That's what Moorcock was. That's what Howard was. That's certainly what Tolkien was. Not that Sakaguchi read Tolkien, but I'm just saying this this fantasy thing is very much about that. A lot of it comes out of Norse mythology, which is all about man struggling against cruel and arbitrary gods. I mean, this is all connected. A literary scholar could, you know, go to town with a whole series on on this. We're just kind of scratching the surface. But this is the context that makes Final Fantasy Final Fantasy. It is a melancholy world in a way that Dragon Quest just is not. 
I think what you're trying to get at is that Final Fantasy has a degree of depth to it, underlying themes and power and story there that you can draw upon and infer that a lot of the time with Dragon Quest, as much as I like it, mm-hmm. does not have. Yep. Dragon Quest is very superficial as things are presented or as things are. Yes. Hawkness got destroyed by the Dragon Lord. Oh no, it's bad. There's Nax Knight there. We don't really have any underlying story there. We don't see something like, well, Hawkness happened to be built on the ruins of an ancient civilization. Mm-hmm. The reason that the Dragon Lord wanted to take it out is because he wanted to prevent discovery of that ancient civilization technology that could potentially take him out. No, there's none of that there. Right, right. What you see is what you get. However, with Final Fantasy, if you look at it more deeply, even Final Fantasy 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, so on and so forth, there is a lot more depth there than what the story is telling. The story that you get presented with is fascinating, draws you in. But if you're willing to look a little bit deeper, you can see underlying tones, underlying themes, hints of how things that have happened in the past affect things in the future. Absolutely. This comes out of Sakaguchi's, you know, initially, obviously, as you get deeper into the series, there are many other influences as well. But this all initially clearly comes out of Sakaguchi's interest in fantasy. So to get all the way back to where we were a few minutes ago, after our tangents within tangents, when Hiromichi Tanaka introduced Hironobu Sakaguchi to the Apple II, he was blown away by Ultima and wizardry, but especially Ultima, because it felt like seeing on screen the kind of fantasy epics that he was reading. This was the draw. He became obsessed with games on the Apple II, and he decided that he was going to build his own Apple II. Tanaka introduced him around. Tanaka took him around to Akihabara and kind of showed him the ropes on how you get this stuff together and how you do this. Of course, doing that, getting this custom Apple II together and upgrading it and all of these good things, that requires money. Money was not something that Sakaguchi was blessed with much of because he had been spending his time trying to become this musician and he wasn't succeeding in that. He didn't have a lot of money and so he needed a job to support his habit here. That is why he decided that he needed to get a job and why he was looking around in recruitment magazines and he came across Square. We won't go into the whole history of Square, because we did do this in our Square Enix episode, and that would be way too much repetition. For our purposes here, it's just enough to say that Masafumi Miyamoto, the founder of the company, it started as a division of his father's company, he saw a market that he could take advantage of in computer games, and so he wanted to bring in young people to make games as this kind of side business or subsidiary business of his father's company. Of course, it grew into its own thing eventually, but that's how it started. Sakaguchi discovered that they were hiring in an employment magazine. He got a job there, and he convinced Tanaka that they should both do it, so Tanaka got a job there. This was right at the beginning of Square's game development. There were other people that came from other places as well, but they were two of the first, and they were two of the most significant. 
of course, they drew on their love of Apple II games, the big Apple II games in Japan, such as they were. You know, it's it's kind of that Velvet Underground analogy that I've made a few times before, the one that Lou Reed always liked to say that, you know, I don't have the exact quote, but like only 50 people bought our record, but every single one of them started a rock band. So that's more or less the quote. The numbers aren't quite right. I could look it up, but it's more fun this way to just change it every time I say it in one of these episodes. It's kind of similar with the Apple II. Not many people in Japan got Apple IIs, but everyone that did were inspired to make their own games. That's where a lot of the Japanese role-playing game stuff comes from. And of course, we did an episode on that. So once again, we won't dwell on it. But the games that were big were the adventure games and RPGs like Ultima and Wizardry with this kind of little underground community. So then as these early adopters started joining companies like Square or sending their games into competitions being held by companies like Enix, that's what they were focusing on because that's what was popular in their own little circle. The first game that Sakaguchi did was the first game of any kind that Square did because, I mean, he was right there right at the beginning was an adventure game called The Death Trap, because they were into the adventure game stuff as well. From there, they expanded on to some other adventure games, but they also got involved in action games. There was a really talented young programmer that really figured out how to make the graphics scroll really well. Sakaguchi was taken by that and did the game Cruise Chaser Blasty, which was an action game. Those of you who play Final Fantasy XIV today, that name might ring a bell because of the cruise chaser boss in one of the Alexander raids in Final Fantasy XIV, and that is a direct homage to Sakaguchi's game Cruise Chaser Blasty. So they're involved in these adventure games, these kind of proto-primitive RPG games, a few action games, and then the Famicom is coming along. This just seems like a real opportunity to expand as well. So they get involved in Famicom games, not right away. They didn't think it was going to be worth it when it first came out. But then as that became a a big system, they started getting involved in Famicom games. At this point, they ran into some trouble. You know, the hot young teenage programmer that had worked with Sakaguchi on Cruise Chaser Blasty wasn't around anymore. They were really struggling to find programmers. And the reason for this is that this little niche computer game moving on to Famicom game kind of industry, this was not a real profession in Japan. Now, there were the old school coin-op companies like Namco, like Sega. Those were companies that you could go and work for. And, you know, your parents might be like, why are you going to Sega instead of Sony? But they were still established companies in an established field, coin-operated amusements. Computer games were not an established field. And remember in Japan, where the goal is at that time, still to an extent today, but especially at that time during the bubble economy, the goal was lifetime employment. You did well in high school so that you could ace your entrance exams and go to a good university, so that you could ace the company entrance exams and get into one of the Big, reputable firms like a Sony or a Mitsubishi or a Hitachi, etc., so that you could spend your entire career at that company. That was the Japanese employment culture. You most certainly did not go and make computer games, which were a new fad that might not even be around in five years. You can't get lifetime employment out of something that might not be around in five years. 
Not unless you have a five-year life expectancy. (laughs) Right, (laughs) exactly. So this was not a field that most programmers were getting into. It's no accident that the people making these games were college students like Sakaguchi and Tanaka who were doing it part-time, and that's what they were at first. I mean, they end up you know, dropping out and, and doing it full-time eventually, but at the start, they're part-time. That's why it's this kind of person. It's, it's almost like a bedroom coder movement in Japan, except I think it tends to be more university students rather than teenagers. That's kind of the difference. But a lot of that early industry is being driven by college students and the like who are doing it as a lark, who aren't doing it as a serious job. And so it could be really hard to find and recruit talent. That's why Enix did things the way they did. Enix didn't hire employees. Enix held contests. And the winning games would be published by Enix. There's a reason they did that. You could not find people to just come and work for you, but you could find young people that would make the games on their own time for the promise of a prize and then that you could publish. Square took a different track. They were hiring people. They were trying to build a company around people. And that was difficult within the Japanese culture at that time. Sakaguchi no longer had his hot programmer and he needed a new hot programmer. And it just so happened that through a series of connections, one became available by the name of Nasir Gabelli. Now, we've talked about Nasir before. Nasir Gabelli was an Iranian. He was kind of of the upper crust of Iranian society. It may have even been related to the Shah of Iran. I'm not sure. But at, at the very least, upper crust Iranian society. And then the Iranian Revolution came, of course, in 1979, and his family had to flee to the United States. So he was an Iranian-American, brilliant, absolutely brilliant programmer. He made the Apple II do things that nobody thought was possible. And he let you know that he was doing it in a time when there was still a lot of anonymity around programmers, not necessarily deliberate anonymity in the computer game field like there was with Atari, who deliberately hid their programmers. But still, in a time when there was a lot of anonymity in game developers, Every one of the games that Nasir did at the company he co-founded, Sirius Software, you know, said programmed by Nasir, not even Nasir Gabelli, programmed by Nasir. And if you were an Apple II enthusiast, you were blown away by his work. He was one of the first people to figure out page flipping, which was basically you loaded two complete sets of graphics at the same time and then switched between them. I mean, only one's on screen at the same time, obviously, but you've got them both ready to go so that you can flip between the two complete graphical images, which allowed you to uh, have faster, smoother graphics and animation on an Apple II. He was creating arcade game clones. Uh, He did a Defender clone called Gorgon. He did a Space Invaders clone called Space Eggs that just animated well and played well and controlled well, were so smooth and had great graphics at a time when Apple II games generally did not. If you look at Apple II action games in the late 1970s, they are not that impressive. Most of them are done because of memory restrictions in the system's low-res graphic mode. So they're these big, blocky, chunky, it's hard to even call them sprites. It's painful to even attempt to call them sprites because they're so big and blocky. They were very simple action games with very crude graphics, often very slow, because, of course, there are no hardware sprites. We've talked about this before on the Apple II. It's a bitmap screen. So you have to do your sprites in software, and that's a real strain on system resources. So the action games on the early Apple in the 70s were not that impressive. By 1980, you have the disk drive, which helps, and you do have people usually getting 48K apples now instead of 16K apples. 
So that's also a big help in terms of the RAM. Nasir is one of the first people to come along when the technology is getting good enough to do something with, who was so brilliant at programming and making that technology do things, and it was breathtaking. John Romero is probably the most high-profile individual who just idolized Nasir. But it was not just him. It was if you were in that Apple II community and, and were interested in programming your own stuff, you weren't just a consumer. In the early 1980s, you most likely idolized Nasir. There's a whole generation of American game programmers that idolized Nasir. He had done his work with Sirius Software, the company he'd co-founded with Jerry Jewell, decided to go out on his own, decided that he was bigger than Sirius, which he undoubtedly was. So, I mean, yeah, maybe a little ego there, but it's not unjustified ego. He went out to start his own company right as the whole thing was falling apart with video games, with the home computer price wars, you know, kind of everything was being laid waste. Then my understanding is that he also got divorced at that time, which was also another strain on his resources. So he was hurting in the mid-1980s. He had been doing well for himself in the early 1980s. He was hurting in the mid-1980s. But he had his contacts still. He had his contacts in the industry. One of those contacts was Doug Carlston of Broderbund. We've talked before how there was a real camaraderie amongst some of the early Northern California computer game companies. Companies like Broderbund, Sierra, online systems at the time, Sirius, SSI, they were friendly with each other. The famous one that we talked about before is when Doug Carlston took everybody whitewater rafting. He got all these people from these different companies together. It was like a company field trip, except it was multiple companies. It was companies that were theoretically competitors all getting together to have fun together. Doug Carlston was really big on that. There were others that also took part, like online systems. But Doug, I think, was the one that was really, he's just such a nice guy. I mean, genuinely nice guy. He enjoyed that camaraderie and kind of really promoted it. So there was a lot of exchange of ideas and information and going out and having fun together between these early companies. So Sirius Software and Gabelli's company was part of that as well. There had even been a time when Doug Carlston had kind of broached maybe merging their companies and having Nasir come and work with him. It never came to anything, but they knew each other. Nasir would stop by the offices of Broderboon from time to time and just check up and see what's going on and whatnot. You know, Doug would try to entice him with this and that thing. And of course, as we talked about in our Broderbund episode, Doug Carlston also had connections with Japan. I mean, Broderbund's success was built on Japanese computer games that they had imported from the company StarCraft. As part of that, they had a Japanese woman who was a liaison who kept them up to date on what was going on in Japan. They continued to be an importer of Japanese product and to have some success with their product in Japan as a result of this. Nasir came in one day when Doug was there and, and this woman who was kind of his liaison with these Japanese companies was there. They got to talking and Doug was basically like, you know, a lot of Japanese companies are looking for programmers that can work on these 8-bit systems because they're hurting for programmers. This woman, I do have her name somewhere and I'm sorry I'm not giving her name. This uh, woman was like, absolutely. I, In fact, I can introduce you to Masafumi Miyamoto of Square who really needs programmers. So this woman served as the in-between, the go-between, and introduced Gabelli to Miyamoto. Gabelli kind of needed a job at this point. His finances weren't in the best of shape, and so he met with Miyamoto, and he agreed to come over and work as a contractor for Square. This was exciting to Sakaguchi because he played Apple II games as well. He knew who Nasir was. Tanaka knew who Nasir was. 
this was a big deal. I mean, you knew Nasir if you were deep in the Apple II community. So this was just truly exciting. Nasir was not an employee. He worked as a contractor. He got himself an apartment in Tokyo, and he didn't even come into the office most days. He'd come into the office two or three times a week. They'd kind of give him all the data he needed to program. Then he'd take it home and program it at his own home since he wasn't an employee. Then he'd come back with what he'd done, and you know they'd, they'd exchange stuff in that way. He collaborated on a couple of games that were just outstanding programming triumphs, 3D World Runner and Rad Racer. Both of these were forward-scrolling games. They were both made to take advantage of a 3D system for the NES, for the Famicom, that never took off and I don't think was even ever available in the United States, but was available in Japan. They're both forward-scrolling games, and the thing is, their scrolling is just unbelievable for a Famicom, for an NES. They're so fast and smooth. Rad Racer especially became a big hit in the United States. Nintendo itself was so impressed by it that Nintendo published it in the U.S. because, of course, Square didn't have a U.S. office. And it became a big hit in the West because it's just a well-put-together game. And a lot of that was Nasir's programming ability, just allowing them to do this great scrolling. Remind me of what we brought up before in our history of Square and Enix. These games have capability with the 3D presentation and scrolling that is just something you would expect to see on a Super Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's Nasir. That is all down to Nasir, who is one of the greatest programmers to ever get involved in computer games and video games, bar none. High praise, but deserved praise. Right around this time, two things happen. The first is that Square is getting big enough that they decide to divide into two teams. They were basically Square Production Team A and Square Production Team B. Sakaguchi had, from the very start, been moving more and more into a managerial role. He'd been kind of leading production already. So Production Team A became Sakaguchi's team. And then Tanaka, who of course joined at the same time as him and his good friend, took over Square Production Team B. So that's the one thing that happened. The other thing that happened is, of course, that Dragon Quest came out. Sakaguchi had already been interested in the idea of an RPG on the Famicom. After all, I mean, these were games he really loved. He loved the Ultima games. He didn't think it was possible because you have the little problem of saving. RPGs are big games. This isn't a game you just sit down in front of your Famicom for a couple of hours after school and play through the whole game, obviously. I'm, that's not news to anyone listening to this. We have to remember that in the early days, you couldn't save on the Famicom. The password system was kind of a no-go. Yeah, for something as complex as an RPG, there's just no way. <laughs> Too many variables. Can't do it. But then, of course, the concept of battery packs came into existence, and here's Dragon Quest. Here's an RPG on the Famicom. Sakaguchi is completely inspired by this. And he's like, okay, now this is possible. Now we can do this. Tanaka, before this, had been playing around with an RPG for the Famicom by the name of Saiken Densetsu. No. Not that Saiken Densetsu. They actually used that name on a couple of projects before the project that is now known as Saiken Densetsu, Secret of Mana. 
they actually tried using that name in earlier projects. And Tanaka had actually been working on a wizardry style, a first-person style, three-dimensional style RPG called Saiken Densetsu, which ended up going nowhere. So, I mean, the Square people were already interested in RPGs before Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest showed them it was possible. So Sakaguchi decided that his next project, he was working on Rad Racer, so he had to kind of wrap that up first, but he decided his next project after Rad Racer would be an RPG. An RPG with the singular goal. Uh, This was a stated goal, not just a kind of tacit or understood goal. This was a stated goal of outdoing Dragon Quest in every way. So he pitches this idea to the employees, and pretty much everybody is like, you have got to be kidding. Dragon Quest is already at this point when they're talking about this. It had its struggles when it very first launched, but at the point they're discussing this, already it is a cultural phenomenon. It has tapped into the young people community and the anime and the manga community to an unprecedented extent for reasons we talked about in our Dragon Quest episode, that it not only had Toriyama, who was already becoming a legend even at this time, doing the graphics, but it had all of the promotion in Shonen Jump, which was the magazine, the manga (laughs) magazine for young boys at that time. So, I mean, it was embedded in Japanese society. So he's saying, we're going to make a game to outdo a cultural phenomenon Thanks, no thanks, okay? So I said that they had just divided into two production teams. Basically, the employees had some freedom. They weren't assigned. They had some freedom to decide which one of the production teams they wanted to be a part of, because Square is still pretty informal as a company at this point. Basically, everybody is like, we're just going to walk over there with Tanaka-san and see what he's doing. Bye now. Zero enthusiasm from the rank and file. Nobody wants to make it. Sakaguchi does have the confidence of Miyamoto, head of the company. Miyamoto doesn't understand the game business. I mean, he's a good businessman and all. It's just he's not familiar with the games. He's not a game player. So when Sakaguchi says to Miyamoto, I would like to make an RPG, Miyamoto's famous question is basically, is that a good thing? Sakaguchi was like, yes, that is a very good thing. So Miyamoto's like, then make it. He wasn't in any danger of not being able to make his game because he had the blessing of the president who had complete confidence in his abilities since he had delivered so many successful games to the company at that point. Nothing huge, monumental company making, but I mean, Sakaguchi was the one keeping the lights on. He had Miyamoto's faith. So there was never a question that he would have to give up making the game. But most of the existing employees within the company were not going to help him. They just thought this was nuts. They went and joined Tanaka's team instead. (laughs) So he had to go outside the company. There were a couple of internal employees that he could use, but he had to go outside the company. He started using the same recruitment magazines like Form A that had lured him to Square in the first place to look for new blood to uh, create this game. The two most important people that came out of that and the two people that after Sakaguchi, were the most responsible, maybe even in some ways even more responsible than Sakaguchi himself, in shaping this Final Fantasy game were brought in in this manner. Those were Koichi Ishii and Akitoshi Kawasu. Koichi Ishii was hired by Square to be a planner, to be a game designer. 
with nobody taking up the reins of this project. Basically, uh, Sakaguchi brought him in and was like, you're doing this game. You will be the planner on this game. And at this time, Sakaguchi was still working on Rad Racer. He was still finishing up Rad Racer. So at the beginning, Ishii was basically left to his own devices to start putting this game concept together. With the director from Sakaguchi that it's going to be a fantasy game. I mean, that was implicit from the beginning. And that the idea was to outdo Dragon Quest. So there were a few things that Ishii came up with in these early days, largely by himself, with some input from uh, Kawatsu, who we'll get to in a second. One of the main things he wanted to do is he wanted a graphical presentation that would really stand out compared to Dragon Quest. He had the idea of creating a world that was almost like a diorama that you were playing. You're not looking on this clunky world of sprites and tiles. I mean, it's still a tile-based game, but I'm just talking about the conceptual logic. The original Dragon Quest did not have all that great of graphics. If you've only played Dragon Warrior in the United States, you have no idea. Because Dragon Warrior came out in 1989. Dragon Quest came out in 1986. They improved things graphically a lot. One of the most infamous things is that the hero of the game could not change facing. He was always facing forward, no matter what direction you were walking, forward, backward, or side to side. There was no changing of facing. The same thing applies to all the guards, all the townspeople. Yes. So on and so forth. Also, I believe the sprite looks a little bit different, too. Yeah, it's, it's also not as detailed a sprite as well. That is correct. Graphically... It wasn't all of that great, and so one of the things that I think Sakaguchi was also interested in, but that Ishii helped define once he was put on the project, was rather than having it feel like this very primitive game, let's make it feel like it's this diorama, this three-dimensional diorama that you are getting to interact with. You may recall if you played Final Fantasy, the world, it's not quite top-down like it is in, say, Dragon Quest. It is ever so slightly tilted. That's to give it this faux three-dimensional look, this kind of faux diorama look, to make it just look a little more interesting and engaging. That's why when you look at castle towns, you see the fences, and the fences that are closest to you are very much a fence. Mm -hmm. But then when you look as it goes further back, the lines go closer together like they are converging, almost like it's further away, a 3D effect. Exactly. He wanted the characters... To have a sheen to them, where it was almost like, you know, you've got your diorama and then you have like your painted metal figures that you're posing in your diorama. That's what he wanted the characters to look like when they were walking around the world. He wanted them to have a sheen and a shine to them and to have a little more detail to them than something like the hero in Dragon Quest. So that was kind of the graphical starting point. The other graphical starting point that he had was that. He wanted it to feel dynamic. He wanted it to feel a little more cinematic. The way to do that was he wanted the characters on the screen during battles. Now, this is a big paradigm shift because Dragon Quest had taken the wizardry approach to battles, which is that you see a window with your monster in it, and that monster may be a very detailed, interesting sprite. 
But that's all you see. It's kind of this first-person legacy, even though Dragon Quest wasn't a first-person game. It was tile-based like Ultima. It had that wizardry legacy element of the first-person battle screen. So you did not see your character. You only saw the monsters. Ishii wanted there to be people on the screen, and he wanted their expressions to change dynamically based on the situation because he felt this would be far more interesting and immersive than seeing nothing at all. So he came up with this idea of doing a side view battle screen instead, where everything is portrayed from the side, and on one side of the screen you have the monsters, and on the other side of the screen you have the heroes. The heroes will change their expression, you know, when they're near death, they'll be kind of hunched over and weak looking, or if they've been poisoned, or if they're asleep, you know, their expressions will change. He wanted this dynamism. So that was another thing he came up with. He also, and I don't know what the influence for this was, he liked the idea of the time loop. He liked the idea of the first boss being the last boss, and the first place actually being the last place. He liked the idea of it all coming full circle. So that was kind of another thing that he developed in this period of time. And he got really in-depth. I wish I had more interviews with Ishii. I'd go more in-depth on some of the decisions he made, but we just don't have that material. He was a very meticulous visual designer. Even though he was never an artist as a job description, he would always render his ideas in an artistic way. So he was very visual forward. And that's why a lot of the innovations that he's coming up with in this are visual. And, And I'm sure there are a million examples of this. I only have two that I can give because I have so little interview material. One is that it's fairly unusual that the mountains in the original Final Fantasy are all white, you may recall. Now, do you happen to know, because I know you said that there were a lot of influences from Conan the Barbarian, Elric, and so on. Did these same kind of influences touch upon Ishii because it seems like a time loop stems directly from that fantasy stage. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know. Like I said, we, we need more information on, on what Ishii's influences were. You know, he was very meticulous on the graphical details. So those white mountains, that's not because of some strange limitation of the Famicom or the NES and its color palette. This idea of crystals in the world was embedded in the game from the very beginning. His view was that the mountains themselves would probably be full of crystals, and those crystals would be reflecting in the sunlight, and that's what would make the mountains look white. Take advantage of those limitations of the system, because the NES, Famicom, doesn't have the capabilities of doing as many colors. So if you can use something that's very easy to do, like a white background with just little accents on it, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The other thing is the White Mage. Of course, the White Mage is a very distinctive character in Final Fantasy because he's got the white robe, but then he's got those red triangles all along kind of the hem of his robes. That was, again, it was something very deliberate and something very visual that Ishii came up with. His idea was that the red threads were actually threads imbued with magic and that they increased the wearer's magical power. And the reason that he put them on the sleeves was because the way magic in Final Fantasy worked is the magic left the character through their hands. In the original Final Fantasy, you know, the animation when they cast magic is that they stick their hands out and there's a beam coming out of their hands. You would have these special red imbued threads right where the hands are, because that's the spot where you need that power. So this was all very deliberate. He had a whole logic system in place. 
That's why there were no metal weapons that mages could use in the first game, because it was this thought that that would interfere with the magical effects in their clothing. It's like he thought about all of this very carefully, and there's there's a depth and a detail to the world there that I think goes beyond, again, say, what the people with Dragon Quest were going to. Not that they were not conscientious world designers, but I don't think they were putting the same amount of thought into these kind of little minute details like the color of mountains and the sleeves of the white mage's robe mm-hmm. that Kuichishi was. And, and these are just the two examples I know. I'm sure there are probably a hundred other examples just like it. It's just these are the ones that I have from English language interviews. Ishii got the ball rolling on the game design. And then the other person that came in pretty early on that was hired in to do this was the other guy I mentioned, Akatoshi Kawatsu. The real importance of Kowatsu is he was a strategy game nerd with a capital N. And when you say strategy game, we're talking like tabletop miniature strategy games? Tabletop war games and role-playing games. This is something that in the 80s was not big in Japan. D&D was not big in Japan. Military strategy games were not big in Japan. Kowatsu was another one of these guys that was really interested in stuff beyond games. He was a huge sci-fi nerd, is how he came from it. He got his first Apple II because of the famous Star Trek games that we've talked about before, that, of course, you had a copy of on the IBM PC as well, these tactical strategy games. He was super excited and into Star Wars, as was Sakaguchi. He bought an Apple II because there was this Star Trek game. He was also huge into Ultima. This was all independent of what Sakaguchi and stuff were doing. His absolute favorite game was Ultima 4 because it wasn't just a game about winning. Of course, we did a whole episode. It was on the middle three Ultima games, but a lot of it was on Ultima 4. We did a whole episode on how Richard Garriott was trying to move beyond the idea of, I'm the good guy, that must be the bad guy, so let me go kill him. And anything I do in furtherance of my goal of killing that big bad guy is okay because I'm the hero. He was trying to get beyond that with Ultima 4, with the whole virtue system and the whole morality system. This is something that really resonated with Kawatsu as well, because he saw that same thing. It's like, this is going beyond. And he was a big sci-fi fan. He was a big computer geek. He was into games. And now he was into role-playing games because Ultima 4 was so big. But even on top of that, in college, he had a friend that would import Avalon Hill games and that kind of thing from the West for them to play. So he got into these board games in college, and that was not a common thing. Not in any way a common thing. It just so happened that he had this friend that was into it, and so he got into it too. And you have to understand, they were importing the American versions of these games. These games were not released in Japan. So they're having to translate this material so that they can play these complex games. Board war games can get pretty darn complex. They have pretty thick rule books, so that's pretty impressive to be kludging all of this stuff together so that they can play them. And of course, because they had to engage with it so much to even figure out how it worked, Kawatsu got very interested in analyzing game mechanics. And because he had to help, because he would help his friend translate the rules and figure out the way to explain these rules to other people, he became really, really interested in game systems, how they worked, how to create them, how to simplify them, how to make them fun. by helping with the translation of these board games. So they got into all of that kind of stuff. 
they would hear about Dungeons and Dragons. You know, in in the early '80s, there was a surge in popularity and a surge in attention on Dungeons and Dragons because it was being sensationalized. It was being tied to disappearances of people. It was being tied to satanic rites. It was being tied to all of these things that it really had nothing to do with. But it entered the cultural awareness of the average person in the United States in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, and that's when D and D really started to take off. Well, these news stories were also carried in Japan. So he and his friends that were into these board games heard about all of this stuff with Dungeons and Dragons. And so they became interested. They were like, oh, my gosh, this game sounds really cool. We really need to try to play that as well. He got into Dungeons and Dragons. And this was not something that most people in Japan were into. That gave a certain depth, once again, to Final Fantasy that a lot of these games didn't have. So, Kawatsu, when he was told that this would be a fantasy game, that that's what Sakaguchi wanted to make, he was very conscious as he was designing the battle system, which was kind of his main thing in this, was designing systems. Ishii was kind of designing the world and the worldview and all of this kind of thing. Kawatsu was designing the game systems. He was very conscious that he wanted this to be very traditionally rooted in fantasy mechanics as understood at this time through things like D&D. He felt it was important to represent fantasy accurately. These are his own words. This is what he said, not speculating on this. So he brought in a lot of orthodoxy from D&D that you wouldn't normally see. One of the big ones that's very interesting is elemental oppositions. Elemental oppositions have been a huge part of Final Fantasy from the very beginning. You always had the elements of some sort in practically every single Final Fantasy game. Ice, fire, earth, wind, so on and so forth. Exactly. And this idea of elemental opposition, where if you have fire enemies, they're weak to ice. Ice enemies are weak to fire. Water enemies weak to lightning. Undead enemies, oftentimes in the early games, weak against cure spells. This idea of elemental opposition was not something you found in computer RPGs or in Dragon Quest. This is something that came straight from D&D. It was kind of hinted at in the original D&D. It was codified very specifically in the Monster's Manual of AD&D First Edition in 1977. This idea of strength and weakness to elements and elemental opposition. Also, this idea of undead and clerics and curing magic being in opposition. This was all codified in D&D and wasn't really seen in games. This is one of the big influences of Final Fantasy, is that they brought this idea of elemental opposition into computer and video role-playing games. This was Kawazu, because he was the guy that was enmeshed in this whole D&D mentality. The idea of character classes. And, you know, a lot of this stuff he did in conjunction with Ishii. So Ishii was also involved in some of these decisions. But the idea of character classes, the idea that you build your own characters. Ishii was very keen on the idea of building your own characters. Well, the Kawatsu connection is that, of course, these are very D&D-style characters. Yes, it's not a complete one-on-one. I mean, they split magic into black mage, white mage, etc. But this idea of character classes, jobs as they're traditionally called in Final Fantasy games, is another legacy of pulling from D&D. You see a lot of very classic classes represented in Final Fantasy. 
fighter, warrior, barbarian. Mm-hmm. Those are sort of all rolled together into a fighter. Mm-hmm. You got the thief ninja thing going on for a rogue. You have a black belt for a monk. In fact, it's called a monk in the Japanese release. They changed it to black belt for the English release. What they decided to do is make their own system for magic, and that's why you have black mage, white mage, and red mage. Mm -hmm. You have someone who focuses purely on white magic, healing, black magic, destruction, and then red mage that can do a sort of a mixture of both. Exactly. You know, your white mage is essentially your cleric from D&D, and your black mage is essentially your wizard. It's just that they didn't have the religious iconography in Final Fantasy, so, you know, it's a white mage, not a cleric. It's very much in that D&D vein. And then they had a lot of enemies that were very much drawn from D&D. Sahagin, which are still a big part of Final Fantasy games today, that, that's a D&D monster. The monster that they called a wizard, they used the generic name the wizard, but it was a creature with tentacles on its face. It was an illithid. In the Japanese release of Final Fantasy, there is a beholder monster. That one, you see, the Beholder was an original creation of TSR, so that was going to get them into legal trouble. There is no Beholder in the American release of Final Fantasy, the Western release. They had to change that sprite. But they drew monsters from D&D. They drew character classes from D&D. They drew elemental opposition from D&D. Again, going back to kind of what makes Final Fantasy different and a little special compared to, say, Dragon Quest— is there's the deep love of fantasy literature coming from Sakaguchi. There's the deep love of fantasy pen and paper game systems coming from Kawatsu. There's this pulling in of fantasy elements that you weren't seeing reflected in something like a Dragon Quest. Now, the other big thing, of course, was setting the graphical tone. We talked about that a little bit in what Ishii was trying to accomplish from a sprite perspective. When I say establishing the graphical tone, it's the sense of the world and the sense of the creatures that inhabit the world, the sense of the civilizations that inhabit the world. They needed an artist that could define that, not the pixel artist. There was a pixel artist that worked on the game, of course. A woman, actually, by the name of Kazuko Shibuya, was the pixel artist. They needed an artist that would kind of set the tone for what they were doing in the same way that Akira Toriyama had set the tone visually for Dragon Quest. An artist to make the stuff that goes into the manual, in the promotional material, so on and so forth. Right, and just to do concept art for which the uh, sprite art can be derived from. And it was actually... Koichi Ishii, who I think must have therefore also been deep into fantasy literature in just the way Sakaguchi was, I just, I just don't have the sources to say that definitively, who said that the perfect person to encapsulate this vision that, remember, Ishii himself has already started to create was Yoshitaka Amano. Sakaguchi said, I've never heard of this guy, so I don't know about that. But here's a few magazine clippings of some art that I think really fits the style. And then Ishii said, um, these uh, drawings and these clippings, those were uh, drawn by uh, Yoshitaka Amano. Sakaguchi was like, oh. Amano was already something of a legendary illustrator at this point. He had gotten involved at a very young, very, very young age in the manga world and had worked on a lot of manga. He had gone freelance. He was most famous probably for Vampire Hunter D. 
but he had gone freelance, and he had also drawn a lot of fantasy covers for this publisher that was publishing the Moorcock books, that was publishing the Gouin series. He was doing fantasy art covers for books, the very same books that Sakaguchi was reading. So even though he didn't know who Amano was, he did know who Amano was. He didn't have a name to go with the art. Exactly. And because he had to draw the art for these books, of course, he was reading them. He became enmeshed in this fantasy literature through doing the art for them. He had not been reading them before that, but he had to to do the art. So again, these are books of melancholy and sadness and post-apocalyptic and impossible odds and triumphing over these forces. So there was a very kind of moody, melancholy feel to a lot of his art style as well that really fit Final Fantasy. He did all of this just gorgeous concept art. At this time, it was all black and white line art that he was doing as concept art. He wasn't doing it in, in bold colors like he would do later. Some of the pieces that they then did as promotional art, of course, were in color. But the drawings that he was providing to the team, his ideas for the way the world would be, were done just in, in black and white, just as ink drawings, black and white ink drawings. They again captured this world of disorder and chaos and fallen out of balance and standing on the shoulders of greater civilizations in the past. I mean, there is a space station in Final Fantasy. There are robots in Final Fantasy. There is the famous war mech in the space station. And heaven help you if you meet it. Yeah, he provided a lot of this same visualization for the world. The programming was handled by Nasir Gabelli, who we talked about before, who had collaborated already with Sakaguchi on 3D World Runner and Rad Racer. It's interesting because... He had never done an RPG before. He did action games. He did fast-paced action games. So he was actually kind of lost. Kawatsu is doing the game data. He's the one putting the game systems together, and then he gives those systems to the programmer to program them in. Gabelli was actually having some trouble with that. He didn't understand the hit points going up and down and that kind of thing. Not because he's an idiot. He's brilliant. But because he'd never engaged with that RPG world before. So they actually ended up having to have a couple of other programmers kind of help him a little bit on the side as assistants just to help him make sense of the tables and the structures he needed to put into place to create these RPG systems. That brilliance of Gabelli is still very much there, and I think the main place where you can see the brilliance in Final Fantasy is the airship. There are various modes of transportation in the game, and of course you get an airship at some point, which is a very big element of all Final Fantasy games. The airship moves fast, really fast. Like you can scroll across that overworld map in your airship at an incredible speed and just have that landscape flying by and really feel like you're rushing through the air. That's all Nasir Gabelli. Having the overworld scroll that fast. I mean, think about Dragon Quest. When Dragon Quest implemented flying, I mean, there's flying in three, but I specifically am thinking of four. When you fly in four, you fly in a balloon. And this balloon is lazily dun, 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 <laughs> floating through the sky with some lazy floating through the sky music from uh, Sujiyama. But in Final Fantasy, man, you're in that airship and like, you're zooming. Yeah, you got a lot more punch to it. Exactly, because you're moving so fast and that's all Nasir. He's just, uh, you know, incredible at getting the most out of those systems. That's kind of his big contribution. I mean, he programmed the whole game. So in, in that sense, the whole game is his contribution. But the things that he was doing that other people just couldn't were things like making the airship go super fast. 
And of course, we brought up another point with this. We brought up uh, something else in the course of talking about the differences in the airships, and that's the differences in the music. If there's one other thing that really sets Final Fantasy and subsequent Final Fantasies apart, it is the music. And of course, that is entirely, at this stage, the work of the legendary Nobuo Uematsu. Uematsu is almost entirely self-taught. As he puts it himself, he's not good at even receiving instruction from others. Not in the sense that he won't listen to them, but like sitting in a classroom and receiving instruction is just not something that works for him. He was entirely self-taught. He was the son of a school teacher. Uh, he grew up in a strict household. He kind of dabbled with guitar some as a young man, was interested in the Beatles and that kind of thing. But what really changed things for Uematsu was in the early 70s when rock and roll after kind of the breakup of the Beatles, the end of that epoch of rock music just exploded in multiple directions at once, particularly glam rock, prog rock, and heavy metal, which again ties in so much with the fantasy stuff, because there was a lot of overlap between fantasy and heavy metal. Michael Moorcock even wrote lyrics for groups like Blue Oyster Cult and Hawkwind, and even performs on stage with Hawkwind, a space rock group at the time, another subgenre. There was a lot of experimentation going on. There was a lot of intricate, melodic stuff going on because the music itself was quote-unquote epic. You know, these big guitars and big keyboards and big synthesizers. You kind of needed epic concepts. Rock and roll music had often just been simple love songs, boy gets girl songs and is happy, boy loses girl songs and is, is sad. You know, that was a lot of rock and roll music. There had been a move towards some more intricate things with psychedelic rock, but that was all kind of based on drugs and stuff, mind expanding in that way. It was a little different. Heavy metal wanted to lean into epicness, and there was nothing more epic than fantasy, which was literally derived in large part from Norse epics. I mean, the word epic, as we think of it as something huge, big, and impressive, comes from the epics which were the root of fantasy. And so there was a lot of overlap. There was a lot of references to Tolkien and Conan and Moorcock and all of that in early heavy metal music and progressive rock as well. All of these things intersect. This was life-changing for Uematsu because Uematsu, like I said, he had a strict, very traditional family. He was not allowed to become interested in classical music or in piano or any of that kind of thing. That was for girls. His sister learned to play the piano. He was not allowed to play the piano because that was a girl thing in the mind of his parents. He absorbed some of their opinions, as all kids do. And so, you know, he had kind of come to think of that in a way as a feminine thing as well. With heavy metal and with prog rock, you got synthesizers. Really, for the first time, you had keyboards becoming very important in rock and roll music. You'd had Hammond organs and other key instruments sometimes being in rock and roll before that, obviously, piano. But this was the birth of the synthesizer as being a major force in rock and roll music. This made it okay. This gave him permission in a way, not necessarily in the eyes of his parents, but in his own eyes, to get involved with piano, to get involved with synthesizers, to get involved with this stuff because it could be used for big, heavy, dramatic things. The early 70s was life-changing for him, and, and he really got into keyboard as well then, and he wanted to make it as a musician, and he was struggling to make it. Unlike Sakaguchi, he kept at it and kept at it, and he got little side gigs here and there, even composed for some pornos. <laughs> Finally, he knew someone at Square it told him that they needed musicians at Square, and so he came in and started doing music for Square, pre-Final Fantasy. 
he was the person that did the music on Final Fantasy. And again, he was driven by Let's Be Different from Dragon Quest. Koichi Sujiyama, who did the music on Dragon Quest, he was much older. He was a generation older than most of the people involved in the, the nascent computer game, video game industry at this time. He had done music for television. He was somewhat famous. He was a minor celebrity, maybe a B or C list celebrity in Japan. It just so happened that he had gotten hooked on Enix computer games as a player. So he had sent in a fan note to Enix, and they were like, Koichi Sujiyama, is this the Koichi Sujiyama? Because like I said, he, he was a name. People didn't know who he was. He ended up collaborating on some of their games, including Dragon Quest. As someone who was older, his music was very much rooted in, in classicism. He was very big on complex structure. His music is very Baroque. It's all about structure. It's very fugue-like. There's a lot of harpsichord in there. There's a lot of strings in there. It's very structured music. So Uematsu, his way of being different from Dragon Quest, and because everyone's trying to distinguish themselves from Dragon Quest on this project, is to create music that's more melodic. That could mean drawing from more classical music when appropriate, but also drawing a lot from rock and from progressive rock and heavy metal, especially because that's the kind of rock that he liked. Final Fantasy had a more driving soundtrack than Dragon Quest did. The battle music is much more driving forward. The airship music, as we talked about, is much more driving. Even when it's not rock, even when it's more classical, it's more melodic. It's driven by themes much more than Dragon Quest music is. And again, it kind of ties into this whole melancholic world. There's a lot more minor stuff going on. There's a lot more feeling of loss and whatnot, I think, in Final Fantasy music, whereas Dragon Quest music is all—and I like Dragon Quest music, don't get me wrong—but it's it's all very bright and bouncy for the most part. The overworld theme of Dragon Quest is actually almost an exception. It's the one time where he like did something that felt a little more mysterious, like you're setting out into the unknown, but most of his music is just very bright and happy. dun 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 you know, very Baroque, very separated, very arpeggio-focused, lots of harpsichord and, and that kind of thing. I'll, of course, be throwing some examples of music between Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest so you can actually get an idea of what we're talking about. <laughs> exactly. So that's Uematsu, who was very much influenced by prog rock and heavy metal in the early 1970s in the way that he approaches games and game music. The other thing is they wanted to have a story. Dragon Quest doesn't really have a story. It's systems-based. Yes, there's an evil. You have to rescue the princess, gather the elements, make the bridge, kill the dragon lord. But there's not really a story. They actually brought in a writer. As a contractor, again, he was not an employee of the company, a writer by the name of Kinji Tarada. He was working in anime at the time. He was scripting the uh, Kinikuman anime series. He had been known for trying to put in more drama and more depth and more emotional storylines because Kinikuman, the anime, just like so many, it was based on a manga. It's a wrestling manga. It was a comedy manga. It wasn't a dramatic one. When working on the anime, he really wanted to infuse that sense of drama, and so he was creating storylines for it that were very dramatic and moving, not just all comedy. The director of the series jokingly would call him Tearjerker Tarada because of the writing he was doing. 
He was actually friends with one of the founders of Square. I don't know if it was Miyamoto or somebody else, but he actually knew someone at Square. Some of the Square people were fans of some of the other series that he had written for, because he'd written for a few. Sakaguchi approached him, and his enticement was, would you like to come with me and create something with the power to move people to tears? He wasn't sure that was possible in in a video game. And I mean, I don't think Final Fantasy itself is particularly a tearjerker, but it was the challenge of doing that that brought him in. And so they brought in a writer, Tarada. He wasn't really always creating the world or even necessarily always creating the story, but it was his job to take everything that was being created, including stuff he created himself, and synthesize it into a script and actually have a real dramatic script for this game, Final Fantasy, and allow them to make it more plot-based. He was also the one that said that they need to have some common elements in case they do a sequel. He said, I've seen some references to crystals. Let's make crystals very prominent in this, because that's something you can latch onto and use in later games to help tie them together if this is something that takes off. So he didn't come up with the idea of crystals, but he was the one that kind of came up with, let's focus on this crystal thing. Tarada's philosophy is kind of what pervaded, because he was the writer on the first three Final Fantasies. His kind of philosophy was, okay, we're making a different game every time, a different world, different story, different whatever, but let's have some common elements that carry over, that make a game distinctly a Final Fantasy game, so that we have a connecting thread, even through all of these diverse stories. He may not have been the only one thinking about that, but certainly Tarada was one of the ones thinking about that, so that's one of his big contributions to the overall thing. We've got this game, and its entire idea is to be cinematic and to top Dragon Quest. You can see both of these goals at the very beginning of the game. We're not going to analyze the whole game step by step, but I just want to take a second to talk about the beginning of the game and how it perfectly encapsulates these two ideas that they have to make something that is truly better than Dragon Quest and to make something that is truly epic and cinematic. The first is that the very first encounters that you have in the game are basically making fun of Dragon Quest, throwing down the gauntlet to Dragon Quest. Because what's the plot of Dragon Quest? Rescue the princess, defeat the big bad. So they start you on this little island of Corneria, where the princess has been taken by this knight. Your job is to go Rescue the princess and defeat the big bad. Your job in the very first hour of the game is to basically do the entirety of Dragon Quest, in a manner of speaking. That's very deliberate. What they're saying is, all that rescue the princess, kill the big bad stuff that Dragon Quest does, that may be their whole game, but that's just our prologue. We have so much more to offer than that. And the other thing is, of course, that famous crossing of the bridge, where suddenly you get this big cinematic, essentially. I mean, I know it's a mostly still image because it is a Famicom, but you get this big cinematic opening that I think had to have been partially inspired by Star Wars, since there are so many Star Wars fans on the team. It's not a crawl because, again, the limitations of the system, but it's basically akin to the Star Wars crawl where you have this basic elements of the plot flashing on the screen over this big cinematic title screen, Final Fantasy. This was their way of showing that this is going to be a cinematic, epic experience. Not just Dragon Quest, rescue the princess, and you're done. You've rescued the princess, and now here's the real title screen of the game, and it's big and epic. That's kind of it in a nutshell, right there. So now that we've done all that, it's time to go back to where we started and talk about that name. Dragon Quest, in Japan, was colloquially referred to as Draku. 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly the way they would pronounce it, but, you know, squishing together the words dragon and quest and basically taking the first syllable of each. Brockwu. I don't know exactly how they pronounced it. It's not important. So, of course, because there was a, an abbreviation for Dragon Quest, Sakaguchi wanted there to be a standard colloquial way people referred to his game as well. Of course, because he wanted to be different from Dragon Quest in every way, he didn't want it to be exactly the same. So his thinking is that he wanted an alliterative title that people would shorten to just the first letter of each word. And he wanted it to be alliterative. He wanted it to be the same letter. A-A or D-D or Z-Z, whatever. He wanted that double letter. He honed in on F-F because it was a little like F-1 racing in the sense that the first letter is an F. He thought F-1 racing was kind of cool, so he thought F-F would be kind of cool because of that connotation. So the abbreviation came first. It was going to be F-F. So what are some good F-words? Well, this is a fantasy epic. So fantasy makes sense. Let's make fantasy the second word. What do we make the first word? Well, I mean, it's an RPG with a lot of leveling and combat, so there's a lot of fighting. Aha! Fighting fantasy. That's what we'll call the game. This is the process. There's no thought of, oh my gosh, am I ever going to make another game again? No. The title was Fighting Fantasy. There's just one problem. There was already a British RPG book series from Games Workshop from Surrey in Livingston called Fighting Fantasy that was trademarked. So they could not use the term fighting fantasy. So they needed something else that had a similar sound to fighting fantasy. So they went with final fantasy. That's the true story of the name, the one that Sakaguchi now tells and is frustrated that people won't take seriously, which is because he used to tell the other story. That he was like, if this game wasn't a success, I was going to quit and go back to university because he'd never finished. And I was going to leave games behind. So this was my final fantasy. He told that story, but it's false. They needed a second word for FF, and final seemed to go well once fighting couldn't be used. So that's why we have Final Fantasy, or FF for short. Finally, at the end of all this, just very briefly, how did it do? Well, it did okay. It did better because Sakaguchi intervened. The company didn't have much faith in it. Because as I said, I mean, all the staff were like, no, we're not going to work on this. We're not taking on Dragon Quest. That's nuts. It's an institution. Even though it's only a year old at this point, it's still an institution already. The company was like, okay, you've made this game, but I don't think anyone's going to buy it. So we're going to do an initial order of 200,000 units. Well, remember with cartridges, because there's such a lead time, because there's like a three-month lead time on making cartridges, your initial order is basically what you sell. If you end up with an evergreen title like, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers, sure, you can maybe go back to the well. But 99% of games, your initial order is what's going to sell. Because if the game ends up being popular, since it takes you three months to make the cartridges again, once you realize it's popular, video games are very faddish. And by the time you get the new round of orders on the shelf, it's already too late. So Sakaguchi knew that if they went forward with 200,000 cartridges, it was doomed to not be very successful because even if people liked it, they'd never make more than 200,000. So he begged and pleaded that they make 400,000 instead, double it. There was some hemming and hawing, but Sakaguchi, he had a good standing in the company because he'd been very successful for him, so they decided to do it. So the original game, they created 400,000 copies. So it basically, I think, sold out its run. That was pretty good for Japan. There were million sellers, but there had been fewer and fewer million sellers as time went on. 
most companies couldn't break through with a new million seller in Japan by 1987 when the game was released. That was pretty good. 400,000 was solid. That's what allowed them to make the sequel. At first, they wanted to do a trilogy because they were Star Wars fans. Hakuguchi was a Star Wars fan. So at first, they wanted to design it as a trilogy right out the bat. Management said, no, we don't even think your first game's going to do much, so we're definitely not authorizing you to create a three-game set. But because he got them to raise the initial order to 400000 it sold well enough that they did authorize a sequel based on the sales of the first game. Because of Sakaguchi's direct intervention, they were able to do a Final Fantasy two. Then, of course, a 3, and a 4, and a 7, an 11, and a 15, and a 16, now in development at the time of this recording. Did it set the world on fire, the first one? No. Of course, in the West, it failed even more spectacularly. Nintendo tried to bring it over because Arakawa was convinced that he could get Americans to like RPGs. He was wrong. The games didn't become popular in the West until FF7. It lays the groundwork. It gets the key people involved. It gets the key themes of the series in place. Some of the things that it does, like I said, like the elemental opposition system, I think probably had an outsized impact on uh, further game development, even outside of the modest sales of the original game. That is its legacy. It has a big one, 16 games and counting. It all started with these guys that are like, what if we did Dragon Quest, except better? I do find it interesting with just having these sheer programming talent brought in, how many bugs Final Fantasy I actually has. Well, it's it's a complicated game, <laughs> you know. It's just funny how the rogue is completely useless, the ninja. Mm-hmm. I can understand, like, some of the elements might not hit the right thing every now and then because the monster's not keyed right or something. Mm-hmm. But you'd think, like, at least all the main characters would have their sort of, like, little trick always work. Yeah, well, you know. See Final Fantasy VI, comma, realm, comma, sketch. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, I mean, they're complicated games, right? I mean, they were games that weren't even thought to be possible on a Famicom a couple of years before. I mean, the reason Sakaguchi had never done an RPG was he didn't think he could even do one. It has its quirks, it has its difficulties, entertaining bugs, but it still birthed something truly remarkable and one of the few truly enduring series of games. There are not many game series that go back as far as the Famicom era, and if you take out anything made by Nintendo, there are even fewer of them. Final Fantasy is one of them. I think it's because there was always something more there. Even in the days when it wasn't selling as well, it was that depth and understanding of the fantasy genre and later other genres that they moved into, like steampunk, etc., that really allowed them to create products that endured and resonated and finally broke through to be multi-million selling successes. We both played Final Fantasy one when we were young. Mm-hmm. The theme of it, the fact that you're going through this world and there always seems to have this sense of something more hidden in the background Mm -hmm. where you have these ancient civilizations and occasionally you find a weapon or something that just seems so overpowered and so wondrous that you go, this is fantastic. This completely changes the way I play the game. Why doesn't everyone else use this thing? (laughs) That kind of thing. Then you go up into the Sky Palace or the Space Station. You go and look at it, and you're like, robots running around. There's these space station that's somehow still functioning here and doing whatever it is it's doing. That kind of theme pervades on and on as Final Fantasy goes on. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, but I think Final Fantasy fourteen actually takes a lot of these concepts and brings it to perfection, where you have ancient civilizations that were extremely powerful. 
fall into uh, chaos and destruction and thing that they did a millennia, two millennia, aeons ago mm-hmm. have far-reaching ramifications when things that are happening when you're playing the game that you go, oh, these implications of what's happened in the past are still affecting us now. This thing that I found in this dungeon or ancient ruin has implications to what's going on now. And I think that 14 actually has a unique place in that it has the available length of telling a story and enough of a free form to it that allows that. I'm not sure if 11 has something similar. Neither of us have really played 11 much, so our uh, knowledge there is a bit low. It was certainly, from a storytelling standpoint, really good with 14. But you can see where all of these elements come from with Final Fantasy Mm 1. You see all of this high fantasy elements before Tolkien that comes in with sort of like ancient civilizations falling, weird monsters and mutants that are just sort of laying there in the background doing evil and darkness. Mm -hmm. You have mages and warriors and stuff who take on a mysticized version of how to live life and how to fight, how to cast magic. Yeah, everyone's casting magic and stuff, but maybe that's because... They understand that, well, if I take this weird red thread thing and throw it in my clothes, then I can suddenly start casting spells. <laughs> and all that red thread does is just pulls in energies and helps focus it for whatever reason. And it's mm-hmm. some ancient technology that just needs to be woven into stuff. Right? Maybe it was just used as a conduit in order to turn on a light. Who knows? <laughs> An interesting right. way of sort of like thinking of it is how you can just take something that's so advanced and something that might be commonplace. And then as civilization falls, people take things that would be mundane to the past and turn it into this major, major thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we've obviously talked about Final Fantasy way too long. <laughs> way, way too long. That's what we do here on They Create Worlds. Talk about things for way, way too long. And people seem to listen, though, so I guess we should keep doing it. I guess so. <laughs> Since we're going to keep doing it, what are we going to keep talking about in our next episode? Well, we've been doing some deep dives on games recently, which is something that we haven't done as much in the past. You know, we spend a lot of time on company histories and on like large trends in the industry. And now that we've covered a lot of that material, there's still other material in those areas to talk about. But after 150 plus episodes, almost 160, we've covered a lot of that material, which is, I think, part of the reason why some of our more recent episodes have been doing kind of these deep dives on games, which is something that we have at times shied away from. You know, we did the in-depth Madden. Now we've done the in-depth Final Fantasy. I think continuing in this vein would be very interesting. And going back to the very beginning of the commercial industry and doing this on a deep dive with computer space. Now, we've done computer space before because we did a nutting episode and we did a syzygy episode. In the context of those episodes, because of course it was Syzygy designed, nutting manufactured, we did talk about computer space and the creation of computer space, even in a little bit of detail. However, through both my own research uh, and some new interviews and uh, some conversations with other people like good old Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, there's kind of been a reevaluation of computer space's place in the establishment of the video game industry. The traditional narrative, of course, is that it was modestly okay. Uh, You know, it didn't lose money as a product, but it didn't set the world on fire. 
that it therefore was more of a footnote to Pong, which really got things rolling. But there's an argument to be made that really its place is more central than that. And I talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of months ago with the people at the Video Game History Hour, the podcast of the uh, Video Game History Foundation. We haven't really talked about any of that on our podcast yet. And I think that that would actually be a very interesting subject, do a really deep dive into computer space, but also a really deep dive into what success looked like for computer space and what computer space really did mean for the birth of a larger video game sector or coin-op video game sector. All right. Well, I guess we're going to delve into a game that we thought we covered before, but apparently it was hiding behind the sun the whole time. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the scenes that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.